Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we turn our attention now to the reading and to the preaching of your most holy word. And we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would continue to mold and shape our thoughts and our desires and our actions for the sake of your glory. Amen. Some people look at a car and they appreciate the great things that this car can do, the amazing things that this car can do. But at the end of the day, they're really and just simply thankful that they can get from point A to point B in a fairly enjoyable manner because of the car. Other people look at the amazing things that a car can do, and immediately they begin to ask the question, how? Well, how does that thing go so fast? How did they make it so comfortable? How did they get the paint to glimmer that type of way off the light? How does a dual-clutch transmission actually work? They want to know the mechanics of the vehicle. Because for them, the how helps them appreciate and understand the what. It gives them a greater understanding of what is happening. And as a result the depth of their driving experience increases. Faith in Jesus Christ changes your life right now and in eternity. And in this, God makes Christians new. He gives them a new standing before him. He gives them new life. He gives them new gifts. And he gives them a new future. But how? How does he do these things? What are the mechanics for God's work. At this point in the Christian life, some of us, maybe even many of us, have been like the first driver. We've been thankful at the amazing work of God. We've been thankful that it's moving us from point A to point B, uh, even in an interesting, sometimes comfortable way. <laughs> but God reveals to his people not just the what, but he also reveals the how. And in revealing the how, we can understand to a greater extent and to appreciate the what. When you understand how God saves you, it gives you a greater understanding of what is happening in your life right now. <laughs> and it gives you a greater depth of experience and intimacy with the person of God himself. In Romans chapter 1 through 4, Paul focuses on the immense power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to take people who are sinners and thus under God's wrath and to save them to a new standing and new relationship with God. And now in chapters 5 through 8, where we open our Bibles today, Paul writes about how these things happen through faith in Jesus. God accomplishes his work in making your life new, he shows us what happens after we are justified before him so that our experience of him would increase in its depth and its breadth. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me to open to Romans chapter 5. Today we start a new series that we're going to be in for the next number of months called uh, Remade. And we're looking at the process of how God remakes people through faith in Christ. In Romans 5 through 8, 
is a wonderful section of scripture that points us to this reality. Please grab a Bible if you have not yet to do so. It's found on page 942 of that pew Bible. And I will begin in Romans chapter 5 at verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies when we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the Apostle Paul begins this new section of Romans. And he begins with the proclamation of two incredible gifts that God gives to people who've put their faith in Jesus. The gift of peace and the gift of hope. And underlying this proclamation of these gifts, there's a tone of celebration, there's a tone of rejoicing. And there's a question that he knows is being asked in the background, and that is, how can we be sure that God will continue to give us these two great gifts of peace and of hope? And that's where Paul picks up from there. We see in verses 1 through 4 that justification leads to this peace and to this hope. And before we go any further, we have to just define one of these very important terms, the term justification. Justification is a legal term that means to be vindicated, to have your guilt removed, to be declared righteous. To be justified means that God himself declares you as righteous. And the analogy that's often used is the analogy of the courtroom. With the sinner standing in the courtroom and the charges of his sin being read against him. And up to this point in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 4, Paul helps us to understand the grave and eternal significance of our sin when challenged up before a holy and righteous God. And how nobody stands before God with a legitimate excuse. And this leads to one verdict. Guilty. And it leads to one punishment the wrath of God. 
And as the scene plays out, the verdict is read. And the one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ hears his verdict read and he is declared not guilty. (laughs) Instead, they're declared justified. Their legal status has been changed. Their condemnation has been removed. They're set free from their sins and from the punishment of their sins. They're declared righteous forever. They are justified. And Romans 1 through 4 is all building to this great crescendo that we see at the beginning of chapter 5 that God justifies sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. At the core of his saving work, if you have any questions about the mechanics of your salvation, know this, that through Jesus, God declares you righteous because of your faith in him. And he gives you some gifts as a result. And the first of these wonderful gifts is peace with God. Look with me at chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. This peace has different facets to it. In one sense, peace is the absence of hostility or offense. More positively, we can say that peace is a well-being in relationship with another. Peace with God is not just something that you feel, though that is certainly part of it. Peace with God is actually a status. It's related or connected to being declared righteous. And it is the result of reconciliation. We all know what a relationship looks like when you're not at peace, when two people are not reconciled with each other, right? I wonder if you have anybody like that in your life right now. I mean, in the best case scenario, if you are not reconciled with somebody, you simply go about your days trying to avoid the other person. And if you're in your same household, You watch TV upstairs and they watch TV downstairs. If you're at work, you take this corridor and they take that corridor. Because seeing them or having to engage them is so troublesome to you because you are not at peace. You're not reconciled. But that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, if you play it out to its logical end, is not just simply that you avoid each other, but that you're actually enemies of each other. Two people become enemies toward each other and their actions or words are in direct contradiction to each other. They cause offense to each other and this results in these enemies ultimately ending up in all-out war against each other. And verse 10 indicates that in our sinful state, God doesn't simply put us into the category of avoiding us, but that we actually become enemies of God. Friends, this is why the message of peace is so joyous. Because through the work of Jesus, you don't have to remain an enemy of God. You can actually be at peace with him because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be found as an enemy 
of the all-powerful one. (laughs) I don't want to be in the position of being an enemy against the one who is perfect in his expression of justice whose being is holy and right and true. I do not want to be an enemy of the one who is the final arbiter of my eternal destiny. But you don't have to be. You can have peace with God. And this is fantastic news. And it says very clearly, verse 1, that this peace comes in only one way. It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, time fails us to spend a lot of opportunity expanding on that reality, but if you've been around Old North for any amount of time, you hear this again and again and again. There's no multiple roads up the mountain to God. There's no variety of spiritual expressions or experience in which you have peace. There's only one way. Suffice it to say, there's only one name under heaven by which people are saved or brought into peace with God, and that's the name of Jesus. Paul makes it abundantly clear in verse 1. And part of this change of status is really encouraging and important for us to consider. And we see it in verse 2. This was was so encouraging to me this week as I was reminded of this. Look with me at verse 2. It says, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Into this grace in which we stand. That phrase is very interesting to me. Into this grace in which we stand. It's particularly important because it helps us understand how peace with God works. Most of us go through life thinking about God's grace as something that is dispensed to us in doses. Pastor Chris talked about this a little bit last week in our Reformation Minute, that one of the key, actually, tenets of the Protestant Reformation was was debunking the myth that God's grace is sort of dispensed to us in these doses. And, And yet... We know that as we try to navigate things of life and godliness that we find ourselves back there again and again. When we do bad things, we need grace. So God, please forgive me and give me grace. Dispense. Uh, I have bad thoughts. I need more grace. God, please give me grace for my sins. Dispense. I have tension in my relationships. I need grace. God, please give me more grace. And there's another dispensation. In short, we tend to think the dispensing of grace is the thing that fuels the forgiveness of our individual sins. But the book of Romans makes clear that our problem at its fundamental core is not our individual sins. (laughs) It's our sin, which has overtaken us and infected every part of us. And so verse 2 shows us that God doesn't just dispense grace toward individual sins, but here we see that the Christian stands in such a position where he or she receives an ongoing application of God's grace, and this grace is the new reality by which they live. And it also is the reality by which they have peace with God. The status of grace 
is something that we stand in. It's not given in doses. For the Christian who has put their faith in Jesus, grace enters us into this peaceful relationship with God. Grace forgives us of our sins, the sin problem we have, and the ongoing sins that we commit. Grace empowers us to live in an ongoing relationship with God from now until the end of our lives. We're always receiving grace. We're standing in grace. We're surrounded by grace. It is the way that God interacts with Christians every single day because of their faith in Christ. And so for God not to be gracious towards you on a daily basis, then he would need to change your status. You would be standing in a different reality. Your justification, declaring of righteousness would be void and Christ's work would be insufficient. But the power of the cross of Jesus is not insufficient and your status has been changed and what that means is that in in the purest and ongoing effect you are standing consistently in the grace of God this changes the way that you pray This changes the way that you look at sin. (laughs) This changes the way and even motivates your desires toward righteousness. And it's part of this gift of peace. The second gift that God gives as a result of his justification is the gift of hope. And we just spent 10 minutes talking about peace. The the gift that is actually of greater significance for this particular passage is the gift of hope. And it's the dominant of the two here. Paul moves this section of Romans to talk about hope and hope specifically as it relates to the glory of God. Look with me at verse two. Verse two, the second half of verse two, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at verse five. We know that this hope will not put us to shame. Hope is the focus on future peace with God as it's applied to us in eternity. And here he says that we hope in the glory of God. That is to say that we understand that through our sin, the glorious God-like nature that we had (laughs) has been tarnished and diminished and infected and continued to be distorted, but the glory of God and his work in Jesus restores us to a God-likeness through this justification. When you're declared righteous, the sins are no longer held against you. (laughs) And so... Our hope is that we will be restored fully in our glorification someday. And to rejoice in this hope is to say that we have great confidence in it. That this confidence is important because it will be grown in us through a variety of circumstances and even through difficult circumstances. 
And that's what he gets to in verses 3 and 4. He tells us that we can have peace with God and we can have hope in the glory of God and that we can rejoice in what seems to be paradoxical. We can actually rejoice in sufferings because we know our status has already actually changed and God uses the sufferings for our good. There's a great paradox that he presents here. Look at it with me at verse 3. He, he talks about these wonderful gifts and then he says, not only that, but we can rejoice in our sufferings. You say, What? We can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Most people see something bad happening to a person and they say, clearly they are not at peace with God. (laughs) Look at their life. God wouldn't do these things to them or allow these things to them if they were at peace with him. Many of us think that about our own situations. Things are going poorly for this season for whatever reason. And we say, I must not be at peace with God. But friends, if you have faith in Christ, your status has been permanently changed to the place of peace with God and standing in grace. And therefore, God is not using his sufferings as an indication of lack of peace. He must be using them for something else. And Paul says he's using them for your good. That God would actually produce something through the difficult seasons of your life. Endurance. Character. And hope. British author Malcolm Muggeridge once wrote, contrary to what might be expected, I look back at the experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction today. (laughs) Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. Maybe you're here today and the sufferings of your life have you up against the ropes. (laughs) Put your faith in Christ You desire to live a life pleasing to God. You're trusting in God's provision, but you have difficulty at work or health concerns for yourself or a loved one or financial stress or relational difficulty. And you wonder where God is in the midst of it. The message of Romans 5 is Christian. (laughs) Take heart. Because God has not abandoned you In fact, just the opposite. Through faith in Christ, he promises to produce something in you. Endurance, character, and hope. Maybe you're here today and things are going well. Maybe they seem like they're going all too well. But we all know that that will not stay that way forever. That's just not the nature of this world and the nature of our lives. And so here... 
we see that we can begin to prepare our minds for the day of suffering, whatever that might come, whatever that might look like for you, and so that when it does come, rather than engaging in self-loathing, which is what some of us do, or rather than excusing ourselves to just towards self-pleasure because we think that we can endure suffering only by having a license to sin, the encouragement here is prepare your minds right now that when your suffering comes, you turn to God in utter dependence to him and you ask him to give you the very things that he's trying to produce in you. Endurance, character, and hope. It was once written that a vine clings to the oak tree during the fiercest of storms. And although the violence of nature may uproot the oak, the twining tendrils still cling to it. If the vine is on the side opposite of the wind, the great oak tree is its protection. And if it is on the exposed side, the tempest only presses it closer and closer to the trunk. In some of the storms of life, God intervenes and he shelters us while in others, he allows us to be exposed for the very purpose that will be pressed in closer to him and he will produce something as a result. The certainty of Christian hope rests in the love of God as it is expressed in Jesus Christ. The underlying question to Romans 5 is that these gifts of peace and hope are glorious and wonderful gifts. How can we know that they will last? Because the certainty of Christian hope rests in a specific place. It rests on the love of God as expressed in Jesus Christ. And that expression is articulated even more clearly in the second half of this passage. And so move quickly with me as we look at verses 5 through 8. We see that we hope, we hope for the glory of God because of the love of God in Christ. Verse 5 tells us this hope, that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me pause right there to say that there is a, a, a sense here <laughs> And for those of you that remember your conversion, you know that there is a sense in which you lack the experience of God's love and its fullest expression until you put your faith in Christ. But when you put your faith in Christ, you say, wow, I never knew that I could feel this way about God. And that is his love being poured out into your heart through the Spirit. It's, you can liken it to a variety of experiences we have in this life, right? Like you, you can liken it to, your, to having children. Before you have children, you think that your life is great and complete and you can do all kinds of fun things and do all kinds of uh, engaging things. And when you have children, a lot of those things that you're able to do are gone, but now you realize a type of love that you had never experienced before. You didn't even know it was possible until you're holding that little baby, <laughs> that you've never known before, and that you just saw 
three minutes earlier? And how can you all of a sudden feel so much love for a little person that can't even talk yet? The love of God in your heart is a similar dynamic to this. You don't even know you're lacking it until you have it. And it changes who you are. And I'm so happy that with all the bizarre kinds of notions of love that we have in this world today that ultimately disappoint us. I'm so happy that God's love is shown again and again and again to be magnificent and to be steadfast. How do we know it's steadfast? We'll look at verse 6, 7, and 8. It says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the logic. Verse 7, human love in its greatest expression would motivate a person to die for another person that they think is good. You have people in your life that you love, that you think are good people, and there's probably a handful of them that you would say, I would die for that person. That's how much I'm motivated by my love for them. But the logic continues that Jesus, God's son, did not die for good people or righteous people. He died for rebellious and undeserving people. That's the expression of his love. And therefore, God's love is greater in its enormity and its reliability than the greatest of human loves. Humans will only die for people that they love and deem to be good. God himself dies for people who are the opposite of good. His love is greater. And the reality of that argument or that line of reasoning is this, that there's evidence that God's love is real, but it substantiates our utter, our utter reliance and dependability on him and the consistency and confidence that we have in our hope. If God can do that and does that, then he, then he is certainly trustworthy to see it through all the way to the end. The certainty of Christian hope rests on the love of God as it's expressed in Jesus Christ. Our hope rests on the love of God, which is immovable and immeasurable and does crazy things like dies for rebels to the work of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 11, we see that finally our hope is founded on, or we can hope because Christ has acted. God has acted for us in Christ. Verses 9 and 10 really summarize the previous eight verses by highlighting a movement from the major things to the minor things. It says this, Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from wrath of God. For if we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more will we be reconciled? Shall we be saved by his life? God moves from the majors to the things that are not as difficult. It's the most difficult thing to justify 
enemies who are rebellion, excuse me, rebellious and sinful and worthy of wrath. And if he's done that, well, then it's easy for him to save us through his life. <laughs> the saving work of God is multifaceted, isn't it? It's not only what you're being set free from, it's also what you're being saved to. A new life through peace with God and hope for the glory of God to come in the future. And in verse 9, you see that these two verses, 9 and 10, run parallel to each other. He's talking about the same thing, but he's giving these different facets. He says, since we have been justified, in verse 9, and if while we were enemies of God, we've been reconciled, in verse 10, they're parallel ideas. Remember, justification, a legal term, your status has changed. Reconciliation is a relational term, isn't it, that goes with peace, and so God has not only changed your status, but he's repaired the relationship as well. Because your status could change and he could still say, I've forgiven you, but I don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> That's not the way he works. He's a relational God. And this is one of the unique facets of Christianity, by the way. No other major world religion has the concept of reconciling yourself in a relationship to a deity. That is the God that we worship. The certainty of Christian hope rests on the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. I close with this brief illustration. Vice President George H.W. Bush represented the U.S. at a funeral of the Soviet le uh, leader Leonid Brezhnev. And at this funeral of the state of the USSR, Things were run in a typical military procession. There was a coldness and a hollowness that pervaded the ceremony. No hymns of comfort. <laughs> Only marching soldiers, steel helmets, Marxist rhetoric. No prayers, no comforting words, no mention of God. This was the expression of the godless atheistic society that the leaders of communist Russia were trying to create. And here it was. Bush went on to remark that the Soviet leaders took their places on the Kremlin wall as Brezhnev, as the family of Brezhnev silently were escorted to the casket to its final resting place. And he was then deeply moved by the silent protest of Brezhnev's widow. His widow stood motionless by the coffin until just seconds before it was closed. And then just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope and civil disobedience as she reached down over his body and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There, in the citadel of secular atheism, the wife of the man who ran it all <laughs> hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life, that the life that she hoped for was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross 
and that same Jesus might have mercy on her husband. And so we ask, where do you place your hope? And as you think about your present and your future, are you sure you have currently and will have peace with God? I submit to you the person of Jesus Christ as the only way to receive the good gifts of peace and hope of the glory of God. And if you trust that your salvation rests with him, then you can be confident in this new status right now and for eternity. The certainty of Christian hope rests in the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. May he continue to grow our faith and depth of relationship with him as we enjoy this new status. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you allow us to stand in your grace, that our peace with you is not just a legal standing, but also a relational one, that the hope that we have is resting on a sure foundation of your love that has been proven and expressed as magnificent and steadfast and reliable. If there are any among us today who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would allow us to submit to you, to trust in you for the forgiveness of sins and to enjoy this new standing. We worship you now. And we thank you for this powerful, powerful cross. In Jesus' name, amen.